Welcome to This Week in Nickelodeon History. My name is Captain Eric. It's a pleasure to welcome you aboard to another episode where we're going to celebrate some Nickelodeon anniversaries that have taken place in between the times of November 6th to November 12th. And this week we are starting out 27 years ago on November 6th, 1995. We had the premiere of Little Bear on Nickelodeon. Created by Elsa Homeland Minerick and Maurice Sendak, the show ran for five seasons of 65 episodes. Uh, both of those uh, creators are the author and illustrator, respectively, of Little Bear, which was a book series that was started all the way back, I believe, in the 50s. It was the very first book that was made between the two. Let me uh, double check on that. And 1957 was the very first Little Bear book, followed by two, three, four, five, six books. Now, the fifth one was the final book released in its original time frame, which was 1961. That was the final Little Bear book uh, written by Elsa and illustrated by Maurice. Now then, of course, Little Bear would be adapted in the 90s right here on Nickelodeon, would have a beautiful run on Nick Jr. It's one of my favorite just all-time Nick Jr. shows for me. It's not one I would pull out and recommend for absolutely anybody uh, in conversation today, but I would certainly bring it up as a wonderful piece of children's animation, and it really stands the test of time. All of the episodes, as far as I know, are available on Paramount+. Plus. And for those who have seen the Little Bear movie, it was one that I, I did not see when it first came out. I, I remember liking Little Bear, but I haven't watched the show in so long. Is the movie worth going out of my way to watch? Because I feel like I, I missed it when it first came out. And even though I, I don't have an inkling to go back and watch the series, the second I, I see the movie and that it exists, I have this feeling like I should go back and, and watch the movie. If you have any recommendations as far as the movie is concerned, I would love to hear them in the comments of the YouTube version of this podcast. Happy 27 years to Little Bear. 25 years ago, on November 8th, 1997, we had the premiere of The Journey of Alan Strange. Created by Thomas W. Lynch, the show ran for three seasons of 57 episodes. Essentially, the show's premise is an alien coming down to Earth and learning how to live amongst humans with the help of a family who, who understands that he's not a danger, he's stranded here, and it is certainly a fun show. I, I recommend it if you are into science fiction in, in any capacity. 22 years ago, on November 10th, 2000, we had the final episode of Double Dare 2000, the first time Double Dare was revived on Nickelodeon. The show was created by Jeffrey Darby, Michael Klinghoffer, Dee LaDuke, and Robert Mittenthal. Now, it was not presented by Mark Summers, who was brought back for the second revival of Double Dare all the way in the far-off year of 2018. This time around, hosting duties 
would go to Jason Harris. And I have to say, even though I prefer Mark Summers, Jason did a wonderful job at hosting Double Dare 2000, especially not only keeping the same level of energy throughout the show uh, that one would expect from a Double Dare host, but also having to usher in an entirely new phase of Double Dare with the whole like triple dare challenge option, which if you selected it would bring more rewards if you were able to uh, beat the physical challenge, but would add in an entirely new level of difficulty that you could only know about once you've selected the triple dare challenge. I triple dog dare you! If you're a fan of Double Dare in any way, then Double Dare 2000 is just going to be as easy of a watch as, as it can get. Because it's, it's still, I mean, at the end of the day, it's still Double Dare. And Double Dare is fantastic. 14 years ago, on November 8th, 2008, we had the premiere of True Jackson VP. Created by Andy Gordon, the show ran for three seasons of 60 episodes. Premiering on that same day 14 years ago, November 8th, 2008, we had the premiere of the Nickelodeon TV movie, I Carly, I Go to Japan, directed by Steve Hoffer. 11 years ago, on November 7th, 8th, 10th, and 11th, we had the premiere of SpongeBob's Runaway Road Trip, a collection of vacation-themed episodes from SpongeBob SquarePants that premiered in that time frame, uh, starting at November 7th, going all the way to November 11th. I, I forgot the 9th earlier. I didn't want to excuse the 9, but... It really wasn't there because 789. Yeah, that was a terrible one, but it is what it is. Eleven years ago, on November 12th, 2011, we had the final episode of Back at the Barnyard. Created by Steve Odenkirk, the show ran for two seasons of 52 episodes. Back at the Barnyard, very much like the adventures of Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, was a production between Nickelodeon Animation Studio and Omation Animation Studio. Both series had feature films come out first to, and this is extremely smart, but if you're going to guarantee both a TV show and a movie, you do the movie first because especially with these CG characters, you can reuse all of those assets you spent the money on for the TV show. The same thing happened here with Back at the Barnyard, although a few things have changed Whereas with Jimmy Neutron, there wasn't as many changes other than just the looks of some of the characters. There have been some changes between the story from the movie to the TV show, but I still enjoy aspects of Back at the Barnyard. I didn't really appreciate the show when it was on the air at the time, but I've gone back and watched a few episodes of Back at the Barnyard, and it has been an enjoyable experience. But THQ, if you ever hear this, can you just remaster the Barnyard game from the PS2 and the Wii and just put it on new consoles? That game was awesome. Eight years ago, on November 11th, 2014, we had the premiere of 100 Things to Do Before High School. Created by Scott Fellows, the show ran for one season of 25 episodes. Five years ago, on November 12th, 2017, we had the final episode of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on Nickelodeon. Based on the characters created by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, the 2012 Ninja Turtles, as they're known, ran for five seasons of 124 episodes. 
certainly an impressive show from beginning to almost end. But nonetheless, if you have never watched the 2012 Ninja Turtles series and you consider yourself a Turtles fan, give it a watch. It is well worth your time. And it has some unforgettable moments that I didn't think at my age I could still find in the world of the Ninja Turtles. And yet here I am still gushing about it. And for this week's top five, I am going to cover my top five Ninja Turtles villains from this era of the Turtles. So please stay tuned for that. There is no way you're going to be able to guess my number one. Three years ago, on November 8th, 2019, the Nickelodeon movie Playing With Fire premiered in theaters. Directed by Andy Fickman, this movie stars John Cena, Keegan-Michael Key, and John Leguizamo as three firefighters and brought in over $69 million at the box office on a budget of about $29 million. Also three years ago, on November 11th, 2019, we had the premiere of Blue's Clues and You on Nickelodeon, created by Tracy Page Johnson, Todd Kessler, and Angela C. Santomero. The show is still ongoing and is currently at four seasons of 57 episodes and an upcoming feature film that won't be in theaters but will be on Paramount Plus called Blue's Big City Adventure. And let me tell you, from the trailer alone, and the tease of Steve, even though he has been in the show already throughout Blue's Clues and You, I'm excited to see that movie. I'd like to see what they do with this world and these characters in a bigger narrative. But let me tell you, I don't watch this show really at all, and I've seen some clips, mainly from whenever Steve has showed up. But the star of this show, Josh De La Cruz, is absolutely phenomenal. He is so much of the energy of that show. And they did an entire casting call for a new host for Blue's Clues, which yours truly sent a video in, although I, I definitely didn't get into any sort of official audition processing. But uh, let me tell you, there's no way that Captain Eric next to Josh De La Cruz, am, am I even going to vote for myself as a host of that show up against Josh? He is so much of that show now, and I love Steve. Steve has this innocence about him, and since a show like this had never really existed, you kind of just went along for the ride. And Joe certainly dialed up the excitement a little bit throughout the show, but I don't think even the two of them together can match the level of energy that Josh just irradiates on the screen. So uh, congratulations to Josh on uh, his success with Blue's Clues. Two years ago, on November 7th, 2020, we had the premiere of Side Hustle on Nickelodeon. Created by Dave Malkoff, the show ran for two seasons of 46 episodes. And before we walk away from this week in Nickelodeon history, let's go over my top five 2012 Ninja Turtle villains. I am a big fan of the 87 Turtles in that early run. That's when I became a fan of the Ninja Turtles, and I certainly like some of the interpretations of the 2003 series, especially because they took a lot of stories and features from the comic books that didn't ever really make the screen to the original 1987 Turtles. So there's this great mix here 
of a real cartoony, goofy show and a more serious, sometimes disturbing show. And here's Nickelodeon buying up the Ninja Turtles or Paramount, Viacom, who have you. And what are they going to come out with through this run? And let me tell you, I am really impressed with some of the interpretations of these classic villains. And these are my top five throughout the run of the 2012 Ninja Turtles. Number five is the Rat King. There, of course, is always this allure of, of a Rat King and the fact that Splinter is the master of the Ninja Turtles, is their, is their sensei, and can be controlled in some way hypnotically by the Rat King, who, by the way, back in the 1987 series, was more or less a dude wearing some terrible ragged clothing hanging out in the sewers. But the Rat King of the 2012 series is genuinely horrific. What a great reinterpretation of a villain that I I didn't see that coming, but I'm glad it exists because now I don't think I can ever go back on a non-dark Rat King. Number four is Baxter Stockman. Baxter Stockman throughout the 2012 series feels like he got the best of both worlds from the 87 series and the 2003 series. He gets to be a little bit more comic book accurate as in the 2003 series, but then inevitably becomes mutated under Shredder's control to become the fly as he was in the 1987 series. So the Baxter Stockman that we get throughout this show is a very sympathetic character who over the course of the show sometimes causes his own issues, but it was just really cool to see a comic-accurate Baxter Stockman eventually get mutated. Although the Baxter Stockman in the 2003 series eventually went through some nightmares of his own, that is better left said for another day. If you know, you know. Number three is some of my favorite Ninja Turtles villains of all time, and they're my favorite lackeys, I got to imagine. Bebop and Rocksteady. I love these doofus brutes from the 1987 series, and I was always bummed out that there wasn't an opportunity to introduce these characters within the 2003 series. And for the amount of time that it took to get these two in the 2012 series, for me as a fan, it was palpable by the time there was even a leak that Bebop and Rocksteady would once again mutate into a rhino and a warthog. This time around, things are very different between their 87 counterparts and the 2012 versions, but if I could let you in on a little secret, I am a big fan of J.B. Smoove, like a massive fan. I could listen to this guy talk all day. So the fact that we have J.B. Smoove adding in some extra Michael Jackson on top of a pretty good-looking design and a different Bebop and Rocksteady than we've ever been given before, and I'm completely fine with that. I like that these two guys get forced into a mutation tank. This is what they become, and I love that Rocksteady embraces it so much quicker than Bebop. And that's the thing. The mutations of the 2012 series are some of the most unforgettable. Number two, though, is the big kingpin himself, the one, the only, Oroku Saki, the Shredder, voiced beautifully by Kevin Michael Richardson, who not only brings that Uncle Phil, James Avery level 
bolsterness to the character as Avery once did to the character in 1987, but adds on a completely new layer of evil onto that voice that it's it's hard to deny between the Shredders or almost all Shredders, the one from the 2012 series might be my favorite in terms of design and voice. I genuinely love what Kevin did with the character here, but that's not my number one villain from this series. And technically this character doesn't start out as a villain and is actually a new interpretation of an original villain. I'm talking about Mutagen Man, AKA Timothy. The fact that he ends up in a villainous role by the end in an understandable way and still being based off of a Turtles villain in its own right, Mutagen Man, it's appropriate to have him here, even though Timothy, the character I really want to talk about, is not a villain at all. What Timothy goes through in this one episode of the show will stick with me for at least the next 10, 20, 30 years of my life. Timothy is a young guy who ends up seeing the Ninja Turtles save the day and ends up wanting to become a hero himself. He dons a Ninja Turtles-esque onesie and runs around the streets of New York calling himself the Pulverizer, who eventually becomes mutated himself in one of the most horrific scenes in Ninja Turtles history. The sound department deserves a round of applause because I cannot get the screams and shrieks of Timothy out of my head and the thought of this poor guy simply because he didn't come in contact with an animal or any other sort of plant or creature mutates into this blob of entrails and organs and eyes that has to sit in a jar and eventually gets extremely jealous at the attention that Donnie gets with April and it's a whole love triangle thing. It it eventually doesn't really resolve itself in the best way possible because as far as I know, this show ended before there was a satisfying conclusion to what happens with Timothy. Donnie keeps promising that he's going to find a way to bring Timothy back, but I'm left with this understanding that sometimes there aren't going to be happy endings and you were just dealt a hand like Timothy's and you become the mutagen man. That is going to be it for this week in Nickelodeon history. Thank you for coming aboard. Thank you for being a part of my crew. You can reach Captain Eric at Nickelodeon history at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at I'm ready podcast and on Instagram at SpongeBob podcast. Please check out my other podcast. I'm ready a SpongePod Squarecast dropping every Thursday on most conceivable podcasting platforms. And if you can, please check out the Captain Eric YouTube channel from the links in the podcast description below where you can subscribe to that channel. It would mean the world to me. It's your best way to show your support. But if you would like to purchase new and updated merch at the Redbubble link, you can check that out in the podcast description as well or from any of the links in any of my socials. And just so you know, anything, even a sticker, that dollar that comes in for it, everything that comes in through my projects go directly back into my projects, and it's always appreciated. Guys, Nickelodeon fans, as always, please stay safe, be kind to one another, and come aboard again to another This Week 
in Nickelodeon history.